We are beginning a study through the book of Romans, and we are going to be going through this book every Wednesday night until we get through probably the first eight chapters. We may take a class or two to look at some of the themes from the rest of the book, but really the meat of the book is in the first eight chapters. So I'm glad to see all of you here tonight. Um, Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into the study. Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us here this evening, and we pray that as we begin a study in this most powerful book, that you would bless us and open our minds to this special truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm excited about studying the book of Romans. The book of Romans is probably one of the most powerful books in the Bible. Yeah, so obviously I have a, a love for prophecy, so Daniel and Revelation are, are pretty high on my books that I like to study, but Romans is especially powerful, and we are going to go through pretty much verse by verse through the eight chapters. And what I'm going to start with here is just an overview or an outline or the big picture of the book of Romans. So the setting of the book of Romans, Paul wrote this while he was in Corinth. We believe it was written, I believe, around 58 to 60 AD. And he was addressing especially the Christians who had migrated to the city of Rome. And by this time in the history of the world, Rome was the leading city of the world. So... Paul had a special burden for the people at Rome, and when he wrote the epistle to the Romans, he had not yet been able to travel to that city. And so this was sort of a letter to the Romans to say, hey, this is the gospel, and I hope I can come and preach it to you in person eventually. And what we end up getting is probably the most theological exposition of the gospel that is in the Bible. Um, It's a legal and theological exposition that is unmatched in any of the other epistles that Paul writes. And the only other book that Paul wrote that comes similar to Romans is the book of Hebrews, which is also a very powerful book. And um, that has a different message Um, or a different target audience, which is specifically the Hebrews in Jerusalem. So let's go ahead and look at some of the big picture here. What's interesting is Paul wrote this towards the middle of the first century, and Rome had become the leading center in the world. And at that time, pagan Rome was the prophetic kingdom of the world, if you will. We were in the legs of iron. So Paul is writing this book, and it's directed at the prophetic center of the kingdom of this world. And remember, if you remember the image from Daniel 2, you have the head of gold and silver, then brass, iron, and feet of iron and clay. And the mind of Babylon still existed all down through the kingdoms because the head is where the mind is. And so 
from the very beginning of this book, the concepts in the book of Romans counter the mindset of Babylonian thinking. So that's an interesting point to be made about the book of Romans. Romans is written to counter Babylonian thinking. And what's very interesting is we know that Papal Rome succeeds Pagan Rome as the next kingdom of this world. And it continues to have the Babylonian mind. And it was Romans 1. Um, let me get the right verse here. Romans 1.17 that Martin Luther heard audibly when he was climbing the steps in Rome, and he heard the, the words, the just shall live by faith. And he realized that what he was doing was meaningless. And that one verse, the just shall live by faith, started the Protestant Reformation against Rome. So here the book of Romans is designed to counter spiritual Rome. And Obviously, the Protestant Reformation did its work, and Papal Rome received the deadly wound in 1798, and yet when you study Revelation 17, um, Papal Rome's going to come back to life. And Revelation 13 tells us that also. And it's the message contained within the book of Romans, specifically the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the same as the everlasting gospel in Revelation 14, that counters spiritual Rome in the last days. So that's why we study Romans. Romans is absolutely crucial. It's absolutely vital to our understanding of being God's last day people. And we're going to see that as we go through this book. So that sort of sets the big picture. And I'm not going to get into the details too much ahead of time. We'll just get to them when they come. But if you're planning on coming every week, keep reading through the first eight chapters several times each week, and then you can start to plug in concepts. But as far as the big picture, Paul starts off in chapter 1 with an introduction up through verse 17. Specifically, the first six verses, he essentially defines in big picture outline what the gospel is. Then he gives a welcome and introduction to the Romans, and then he says this is what the gospel is again in verses 16 and 17. And then he actually starts to get into the theology of the book, starting in verse 18. And it's interesting, and we'll get there. Paul starts off really by putting an emphasis on the wrath of God that's going to be poured out against the wicked. And he shows who the wicked are in the last half of chapter 1, and he describes the wickedness of the wicked in Rome. But then in chapter 2 he says, Oh, by the way, hey, you Jews, um, if you're breaking the law, you're going to get the wrath of God also. So now he's saying the, the, <clears throat> the playing field is leveled for everyone. And then as he goes on, he introduces the concept of the gospel in chapter 3. <clears throat> and he introduces the concept of righteousness by faith. And 
the question is left, well, that's great, but how is it possible? In chapter 4, he says, well, here's your example, Abraham. He was a righteous man who lived by faith. So here's a human example. And by the end of the chapter, he says, and by the way, it's for you too. And then chapter 5 shows us that Adam had an effect on everybody, but Christ's, Christ's effect on the human race can be greater if we choose. And then chapter 6, 7, and 8, they don't, I'll save that for when we get there. Those are so powerful. So <clears throat> make sure you don't miss our studies on Romans 6, 7, and 8, if nothing else. Um, you don't want to miss mo most of the chapters, in my opinion. It's just such a powerful book. Let's go ahead and go to chapter 1 now and get started in the actual meat of the book of Romans. <clears throat> Starting in verse 1, <clears throat> Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. So in verse 1, it's indisputable Paul is the author of Romans. Pretty basic, but the next phrase he is a servant of Jesus Christ. And this gives us an important understanding of the gospel. Because Paul, who is a servant of Jesus Christ, and he's separated under the gospel of God, there's a connection between being a servant of Jesus Christ and proclaiming the gospel of God. And what is that connection? Well, if you look at the meaning of the word servant, a servant is also a slave. Which means that if you're a slave to someone, you do whatever they say. And so Paul is qualified to give the gospel message because he has given his life to God as a servant or as a slave. So Paul is completely dedicated to the gospel of Jesus Christ. His life is 100% servanthood to Jesus. And the concept of being a servant of God is crystal clear in, the, in chapter 6 of Romans. We'll get there. But if you want to know what it means to be a servant of Jesus Christ, the concept of being dead to sin is reiterated several times. So when, and then you have Romans 7, which basically shows the experience of being a slave to sin. So Paul is a servant of Jesus Christ, and that qualifies him to give the gospel of God. And just making a practical application, when you look at the three angels' messages, the first angel's message describes the everlasting gospel giving, being given to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. If we're going to give that everlasting gospel to all the world, we, like Paul, need to be servants of Jesus Christ. And that's not a light statement. It means to be 100% given to God. So 
Paul is a servant of Jesus Christ. That qualifies him to give the gospel. And God is looking for a group of people who will give the three angels' messages, which includes the everlasting gospel. And he wants us to be servants as well. What's interesting is, when you look at Revelation 7, the 144,000 are described as the servants of God who are sealed in their foreheads. So, in its most basic sense, perhaps, the book of Romans is going to give us an understanding of how to become part of the 144,000. To be servants of Jesus Christ. Paul was a servant of Jesus Christ. And if he had lived in our day, he would be, according to the Bible, eligible to be among the 144,000. And he is giving this gospel in the hopes that the power of the gospel will f- help others to also have that experience. So, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Now, this is interesting. Who called Paul to be an apostle? It was Jesus on the road to Damascus. And it's interesting that when Judas left the twelve, he, of course, committed suicide. And after the death of Christ, they cast lots to replace Judas, that was an act that the disciples did in and of themselves. But Paul was called of God. Now, obviously, I'm not saying bad about the the replacement for Judas. He was a godly man. Um, But what's interesting is, is that Paul was chosen of God to be an apostle separated under the gospel of God. And then verse 2, pretty straightforward, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, this is an interesting point. A lot of people say they are New Testament Christians, that the New Testament defines what the gospel is today. Well, if you make that argument, I'll buy that as long as you except the fact that if you look in your marginal references, Paul is quoting liberally from the Old Testament throughout the book of Romans to prove what the gospel is. Case in point, when he says the just shall live by faith, he's quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And there's many other places. You can just look down your marginal reading as we get into the meat of the book of Romans. Um, But Paul quotes liberally from the Old Testament, and he's trying to show to Jews and Gentiles that the gospel that he is about to preach is actually not a new gospel. He's just distilling it down to a very concentrated form. But it's always been there. It's always been in the scriptures. And you find it in Genesis 3.15. That's pretty early on in the Old Testament. So all Paul is saying, hey, what I'm going to tell you about, it's been promised a long time before by the prophets in the Old Testament, and now we're just going to talk about it further. And Paul does a powerful job of crystallizing what the gospel is. He condenses the Old Testament, but he doesn't negate the Old Testament. He uplifts and exalts the Old Testament as a source for what he's going to say. Now, if you notice in your Bible, verse 2 is in parentheses. So, verse 3 is then a direct continuation of the thought that we had in verse 1. 
And verse 1 gives us the idea, okay, Paul is going to tell us what the gospel is. This is what he's setting us up for. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. He's an apostle separated to the gospel of God. He makes a parenthetical statement. And then verse 3, the Bible says concerning. So what's the word concerning related to? It's the gospel of God that, that he's talking about. So the gospel of God is concerning. And then we see what verse 3 says. His son Jesus Christ our Lord. So, and we know that the word gospel means good news. That's pretty straightforward. So the good news of the gospel is about Jesus Christ. I thought I'd hear an amen for that. Praise the Lord for Jesus Christ, amen. And we see how Jesus is described. He is our Lord. So, right there, you have the concept of servanthood to Christ. Because when you're a servant or a slave, you're a servant or a slave to your Lord. So, Paul was servant to his Lord, Jesus Christ. And the very first thing that he says really about the gospel is, is that Jesus is our Lord. And if we're going to experience the good news, he needs to be our Lord. He needs to be number one in our life. So what does that mean for Jesus to be Lord of our life? That means that we willingly do whatever he says. And that's, that's the, um, the rules of the game, so to speak, between servant and lord the servant obeys his lord now that may sound bad and yet paul is saying this is the gospel this is good news jesus is our lord so if jesus is our lord and we willingly obey whatever he asks us to do that means that it must be good Whatever he's going to ask us to do must be a good thing because what he's talking about is the gospel. Does that make sense? So the gospel is, hey, Jesus is our Lord. We serve him, and that's a good thing. And so the gospel is about Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, the very, so we see the gospel is all about Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. And then the very next thing we see in verse 3, we see is that he was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now, the question then is, what is the good news about Jesus being made of the seed of David according to the flesh? Well, all of us are born according to the flesh. We don't have that choice. When we are born, we are born of the flesh. You can see that concept clearly in Psalms 51. And Jesus came from the line of David, which is of the tribe of Judah. 
and so the first thing that he's trying to show here is that, hey, Jesus came from the line of David. And all the Jews knew that Jesus would, the Messiah, I should say, the Messiah would come through the tribe of Judah, from the line of David. So the fact that Jesus came from that line was evidence of his Messiahship. But there's clearly something deeper to being made of the seed of David according to the flesh than just coming from that, that line. And what Paul is getting at, and we will see this later in the book, is that we all have a flesh to contend with. And Jesus contended with it as well. And because of that, we can have victory. And the proof of that is, it's sort of like a, a, chi, a chiastic structure here. You go to Romans 8, and the same idea comes up. I will point this particular point out. In Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, <clears throat> In Romans chapter 8, verse 3, it says, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So Jesus came, according to the biblical terminology, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Because of that, the power of sin in the flesh was condemned by the life of Christ because Christ demonstrated that sin doesn't have to have dominion or power over the flesh anymore. And in verse 4, because sin was condemned in the flesh, we see that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. So, Paul doesn't spend a whole lot of time explaining that in Romans chapter 1, verse 3. But he's making that as a, an introductory point to say the fact that Jesus came in the flesh is a huge part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's one of the very first things he points out in the book of Romans in, with respect to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is our Lord, and he was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. And that's good news for each one of us. Because we all live in the flesh. Now, <clears throat> so there's hope for us, yes. In verse 4, <clears throat> he goes on to say that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Now what's interesting is, <clears throat> the concept of Christ's death on the cross is implied here. The fact that he was resurrected from the dead means that he clearly had to have died. And so obviously, Christ's death on the cross is, is being touched upon but 
Paul is specifically talking about how Christ was resurrected from the dead. And before we get there, starting in verse 4, he says, he's declared to be the Son of God with power. So the other element of the good news is that Jesus is the Son of God. And in its most basic sense, we know John 3.16, which is a powerful verse. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. So Jesus is the Son of God, and he's the Son of God with power. When Jesus was here on this earth, he demonstrated the power of God. And each one of us can have that same power. And in verse 4, it says, according to the spirit of holiness, the power of God will bring the spirit of holiness into our lives, which is a powerful thought. And it's interesting, he ends that verse by saying, he's declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So, Paul is putting an emphasis here on the resurrection of Christ. Now, <clears throat> a lot of times when we think about the gospel, many friends of other faiths will put the emphasis on the cross and that Jesus died for our sins. And, and by the way, that, that's crucial that we put emphasis there. We don't want to undermine that by any means. If Jesus didn't die on the cross, then he wouldn't have been resurrected, and, so, and then the next steps after that would never have happened. So the cross was a crucial focal point to the gospel. But Paul is emphasizing here that Christ was resurrected from the dead. And it's interesting, if you, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul expounds on the concept of the resurrection because some people believed and some Jews who would have been Sadducees who were trying to mingle that with being Christians accepted the belief that there was no resurrection from the dead. And Paul counters that argument, starting in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. And then he goes on to say in verse 16, for if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And then verse 17, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. Now, <clears throat> that's an interesting concept. He's saying if Christ wasn't resurrected from the dead, you would still be in your sins. Which gives us the idea that the removal of our sins, there's more to it than the cross. 
Because Paul is saying, if Christ died on the cross, but he wasn't resurrected, you are yet in your sins, or you are still in your sins. Now that's an interesting point. And then in verse 19, he says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. And that one word, the only other time it's used is to the Laodicean church. That's sort of an aside, but the point to Laodicea is the Laodiceans think that they're going to heaven, but they actually only have hope in Christ in this life because they're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. <clears throat> That's a separate issue. But the point that Paul is making is Christ's resurrection from the dead is essential to our salvation. And one other verse to show this is in the book of Romans, verse 25, where it speaks of Christ, and it says, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Four, Romans 4, verse 25. So here, in Romans 4, 25, it says, Jesus was raised again for our justification, which, obviously, in order to be saved, we must be justified. I mean, that's, I think... All Christians of whatever faith would agree, in order to be saved, you need to be justified. And we're going to talk about what it means to be justified as we go through this book, which is the most important point of the whole book. But in order to be justified, Christ must be resurrected from the dead. Which means that what happened after Christ died is also important to our justification or our salvation just as the cross is important to our salvation. So if Christ doesn't die on the cross, we can't be saved. If Christ isn't resurrected, we can't be saved. Which means that if Christ can't go to heaven to minister for us in the heavenly sanctuary, we'll still be in our sins. Because if he stays in the grave and he can't go and finish the work in the sanctuary then we'll still be in our sins. And the simple illustration of this is just to look at the sanctuary concept. In the courtyard is where the sacrifice takes place. That's where the cross happened. Then you have the holy place, and then you have the most holy place. And the final removal of sin, or the final atonement, if you will, takes place in the most holy place. That's an Adventist concept, but I make no, no apologies for that because it's a biblical concept. And Paul, I don't know what other Christians do who say the atonement was finished at the cross when, they, when you see verses that say he was raised again for our justification. Because if the atonement was completed at the cross, why would he need to be raised for our justification? So what we, what we have here then is a picture of the introduction of the gospel, and he continues here in verse 5. It says, by whom we have received grace and apostleship. So here's the concept of grace coming in. What we receive from Christ, because he was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, because he was resurrected from the dead, what we receive is grace and apostleship. And we all need God's grace in order to be saved, because none of us deserve salvation. Amen? So we receive grace from God and apostleship. Now, what is that grace and apostleship for? He says in the same sentence. 
the grace and apostleship is for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Now that's interesting because some people say that God's grace enables you to keep sinning and grace covers you, but you're saved. And what the Bible is saying is that we receive God's grace for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Now, the marginal reading for obedience to the faith is to the obedience of faith. And you could get into a little discussion about the difference between those two meanings. But the bottom line is, is that faith and obedience are connected. You can't have faith without obedience, and you can't be obedient without faith. And the way to have obedience and faith is by the grace of God. And that's the biblical concept of God's grace. So when we receive grace and apostleship, we receive power to be obedient to the faith among all nations for his name. And then verse 6, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. Now that in, in a nutshell, those first six verses, is Paul's introduction to the gospel. You can kind of see where he's going with the big picture of Romans in those first six verses. Being a servant of Christ, Christ is our Lord, Jesus was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and he was resurrected from the dead for our salvation. And with the grace that we receive, we are obedient to the faith that God has given to us. Now, <clears throat> the next 10 verses or so is sort of his introduction of, hey, I can't wait to see you type of thing. And we'll just go through this briefly, starting in verse 7. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Now, wouldn't it be nice if our faith was spoken of throughout the whole world? The people in Rome, their faith was spoken of throughout the whole world. And there is coming a time when there will be a group of people who have faith that is spoken of throughout the whole world. And those people will have that faith through a correct understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ here in the book of Romans. And the Bible, of course. And so I look forward to the day when God has a group of people whose faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. And that's an object lesson to us. Do we pray for our fellow believers without ceasing? Verse 10, making a request, if by any means now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end ye may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. And just a basic point, but there is high spiritual value in getting together with like-minded believers to encourage each other. And in Hebrews 10, 25, Paul says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. If you start meeting in a home church with you and one other person, you don't get the same value as when you come with a, a larger group of believers. Now, if you live out in the middle of nowhere where it's just you and one other person, praise the Lord. But if you're avoiding the assembling among the faithful, you're missing out on God's blessing. 
Verse 13, Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. So now he comes back to this concept of preaching the gospel, and he's going to be preaching it to those who are at Rome. And then in verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, we're not going to have time to really de develop verses 16 and 17 because we're going to leave the last few minutes here for prayer time. But what I will say about verse 16, <clears throat> Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Now, everybody likes to say that because everybody has a definition of the gospel. So everybody likes to talk about how well, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And that's good. But it gives the idea, it's sort of implied, that humanly speaking, there is a shame to the gospel of Christ. Humanly speaking. And we've kind of already touched on it. But humanly speaking, who of you wants to be a slave to anybody else? I mean, that doesn't sound so great. And again, we talked about that. If you're a slave to God or a servant to God, then what he tells us to do is going to be good and it's going to be good news. But humanly speaking, there is an element of human shame that I have surrendered or submitted my life to the control of somebody else. And Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of that. I am, I am unashamedly 100% in the service of God as his servant, as his slave. And nothing you say is going to make me ashamed of that. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he says, for it is the power of God unto salvation. So here he uses the word salvation, and the word power is the Greek word dunamis, which means dynamite, which means there is explosive power in the gospel of Jesus Christ to save us. There is, the gospel is not lacking in power to save each one of us. And notice, it's to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And what you're going to see as we go through the book is that the Jews and the Greeks have all sinned, so they're all under condemnation, but the Jews and the Greeks are all eligible to be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the last thing I'm going to say, and then we're going to break up for prayer time, is that the that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings salvation to everyone who believes. Now, in James chapter 2, it says the, de the devils believe also and tremble, but that doesn't mean anything because they're not saved. And what we're going to see as we go through the book of Romans, we're going to see the demonstration of what it means to believe and how Abraham believed. In Romans 4, it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Well, what did he do? We'll study that. And in the end of chapter 4, it says, if we believe, we will have righteousness imputed to us. So there's 
a deep meaning to the word believe, to everyone who believes. It's not, I'll just say this, it's not just enough to say, well, I believe Jesus died on the cross because the devils believe that too. And that doesn't necessarily save them. And it's for everyone, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we're going to stop there and then next week we will pick up in verse 17. And what we're going to see is, We'll talk a little bit about the just living by faith. And then the last half of the chapter, Paul spends all of that time developing the concept of the wrath of God, which seems sort of opposite to the good news of Jesus Christ, but you'll see why he does that. So what we're going to do now, we're going to break up into um, groups to pray. And if you have special prayer requests, bring them up in your your small group. We'll break up into groups of three or four, and let's try to be be finished by eight o'clock. And um, I would encourage you, if there's things in the book of Romans that are convicting you about your life, are you really a servant to Christ? Are you still hanging on to things that prevent you from being his servant? Have you experienced the power of God in your life? These are good things to pray about in our prayer time as well. So we can make our prayers practical as well. So, and then at, at 8 o'clock, um, I'll wrap up with a closing prayer. So let's break up into groups of three or four and spend the next several minutes praying. And then we will come back and finish up together here at 8 o'clock.